another amazing episode of Much Language Such Talk. Today you're hearing from me, Corrine, and our volunteer, Vittoria, who is a PhD in linguistics at the University of Edinburgh. Her research focuses on how bilingual children are differently affected by language disorders, specifically dyslexia, compared to monolingual children. Welcome, Vittoria. Hi, Corrine. Thank you very much for that. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Today, we are wonderfully joined by Dr. Vicky Honoriani. Um, she is a researcher and senior lecturer in bilingualism at the University of Edinburgh. Her research focuses on bilingual children's cognitive development and how language disorders might affect this. She has conducted research with Greek, Dutch, Welsh, German, Scots, Gaelic, Mandarin, Chinese, and English bilinguals. Vicky is also the Bilingualism Matters Program Director of Bilingual Development and Developmental Language Disorders. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, how are you? Hi, Karine and Victoria. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so I'm much. really excited for this. Yeah, we're very excited to hear everything that you have to say. Um, developmental language disorders and bilingualism, I think, is something that really interests everyone and it really interests us. Um, I personally have like um, a learning disability and I know Victoria's research aligns with yours a lot. So this is going to be, I think, great for everyone. I'm, we're really excited. So let's just jump right in. Uh, when and how did you develop your interest in languages and language disorders? Uh, well, this came after actually uh, my PhD. Uh, so uh, in terms of language and uh, languages, I was actually born in a predominantly monolingual Greek speaking home. Uh, so both of my parents were speaking uh, Greek in the home, uh, but they were very much interested in me learning other languages. So uh, in Greece, we have what are called uh, language schools, uh, where kids go to learn other languages um, and English and French are the most popular ones so they sent me to learn French no sorry English first <laughs> around the age of seven or eight uh, which I found very intimidating but then I realized that I really like doing that uh, so after a couple of years they also kind of uh, sent me to another school to, to learn French um, so I got the languages bug um, and then when I was at the university I started learning a bit of Italian um, and German as well. Um, and then I was uh, doing my PhD on Turkish uh, Greek bilingual children. So I tried to pick up some Turkish and so on and so forth. Yeah. So uh, so basically, I think once you realize you're good at doing something, you just want to do more of it. That sounds amazing. Wow. So this is how kind of my interest in languages came about. And then uh, when it comes to language disorders is when uh, after I did my, my PhD, or actually while I was finishing my PhD, uh, this uh, postdoc came up um, on uh, bilingualism and developmental language disorders or specific language impairment, as it was called at the time. Uh, so they were looking at kind of similar phenomena that I was looking at in my PhD. Uh, so I thought that's a, an excellent kind of match. Uh, so this is how I moved from uh, typical bilingual development to um, developmental language disorders. And I joined uh, a university, uh, a department uh, specializing in clinical language sciences. Wow, that's, that's so really cool. impressive. Yeah. To find, yeah, that one postdoc that managed to like bring you into this crazy, amazing world of language disorder research. Wow. Yeah, it was something like really happening at the time. So that was uh, just over 10 years ago. And there was like um, increased interest in, in this field. Uh, so it was very timely. And I was just happening to be finishing my PhD. So it was mm -hmm. great, great timing. Oh, yeah, that is perfect. That's so lucky as well. Um, you, you mentioned that you learned a ton of languages growing up. Um, so you said first you learned English at school. Yeah. And then you learned French later on. Did you learn any other languages while you were in school, like when you were finishing your primary and secondary? Yeah. So in primary, uh, we were doing English as well in the school. And then in secondary, we were doing French. 
Oh, so you, and then you also additionally took them outside. Yeah, of it's very common. Yeah, it's very common in Greece to actually be doing these afternoon language schools as well. On top of everything, like um, European languages are very much valued in in the Greek context because I guess Greece is not kind of spoken very much outside Greece, uh, apart from the heritage communities. Uh, so speaking other languages, especially European languages, is very highly valued. You mentioned that the community you lived in was very monolingual, but it seemed like everyone wanted to learn other languages. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay, yeah. So right now, everybody talks about this notion of who is a monolingual speaker, since everybody seems to be speaking another, you know, second language. Um, but uh, it's not actually, it wasn't actually spoken on a daily basis. So apart from the context of the private, like, language learning context, uh, it wasn't as if I was speaking English with my parents, for example, or even with my, my brother. Uh, so, or even with my friends. So it was mostly in the context of that kind of couple of hours a day or every other day of English courses. Mm-hmm. And have you continued is it that love? Because you said that you also tried to learn Turkish during your um, PhD. So have you continued that love for learning languages now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, right now I'm trying to, to learn uh, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. How's that going? Uh, it's going well. <laughs> I'm actually very, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 hot. it's tough. Like the pronunciation and the, the tone like the the system that they have is quite complex but it, but it's really interesting it's uh yeah that's really cool wow um i <laughs> Have you gotten to the point where you're learning characters yet, or are you still using Pinyin? Uh, we did a bit of that, uh, but they're so hard. <laughs> and the problem with Chinese is that you know you don't have the the sound to letter correspondence as you have with alphabetic languages. So you just really need to memorize the character. And my memory, <laughs> I don't have more space <laughs> in my memory for that. <laughs> you have a lot going on, so I think yeah, that's okay. Take yeah, time. You'll get there. I, I will get there. I will get there. I think the more vocabulary you learn, the easier easier it becomes to kind of start picking up the characters but at the moment I'm just trying to figure out like you know words and sentence structure so yeah I'm not at that level yet but you're getting there slowly by slowly uh, hopefully yeah <laughs> it's so great that you've managed to keep bilingualism and like link and all of your research and your life experience also going on through your research as well um, I was just wondering when did you come to the University of Edinburgh I joined the University of Edinburgh in 2014 Mm-hmm. And then how did you get involved with Bilingualism Matters? It was actually one of the things that was uh, like part of the, the jobs that I needed to do while joining the university because the position was advertised as a lectureship in uh, bilingualism. And one of the things I had to do and I actually enjoy doing is uh, being involved with uh, Bilingualism Matters, which is a research and dissemination center. So you've been with them since you started at the university? Yeah, since 2014. Yes, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So like... Things have definitely changed and bilingualism matters has definitely restructured as the, how it deals with its academic members. So now we've got program directors. And as I mentioned before, you are the program director of bilingual development and developmental language disorders. So what does that entail? So what did you I know with the pandemic, that's kind of, you know, kind of thrown things for a loop. So what what were your plans with this role and what do you do with that exactly? Yeah. So basically, um, I specialize. So we have different program directors in different areas and we try to cover um, languages across the lifespan. So I specialize with uh, bilingual development, so childhood bilingualism and developmental language disorders. And the idea is to reach out to uh, professionals who deal with bilingual children. And these may be uh, teachers, speech and language therapists, clinicians, um, health visitors. So we try to disseminate information regarding bilingualism and bilingual diagnosis, for example, diagnosing disorders in bilingual children and what we currently know and how this can be implemented on a 
on a daily practice, for example. So the pandemic actually hindered that type of, of uh, activities, but we're hoping to be able to do that, uh, to do these things, to continue doing these things through webinars and other online platforms. We also try to kind of uh, recruit participants mm -hmm. through the different contacts we have across uh, schools when we have a particular study to carry out. We also hold events for, uh, for parents and for families to kind of give them the latest information regarding bilingual development and uh, language disorders in bilingual children. I mean, we get lots of, lots of questions like, you know, for example, if I speak the home language to my child and not the, let's say, English, is this going to hinder their development? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so is it possible for a bilingual child to have a language impairment in one language but not the other? Mm -hmm. We have that written down. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So we get these questions a lot and we try to kind of uh, inform people about what we currently know mm -hmm. about the, these issues. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to continue having these workshops with parents and clinicians during the pandemic, though? Have you been hosting them online? Not yeah, so I know uh, Bilingualist Matters have been organizing this, have been participating in these. Uh, and now from January, we're hoping to hold uh, a couple of webinars for uh, teachers and clinicians and also parents. Uh, we currently have a project on uh, children attending Gaelic medium education. Uh, so we're hoping to uh, kind of uh, organize these webinars uh, as part of this larger project. All right, fantastic. Let's hope that goes through, yeah. Yeah, let's hope so. And within the area, of uh, language disorders in bilingual children, what is your current research focusing on specifically at the moment? So right now we have, as I said, this project looking at children in Gaelic medium education, mm -hmm. so primary schools, and we're looking at the development of children in Gaelic and in English. And we are uh, testing children who have typical development and also children who have developmental language disorder or SLI, specific language impairment. So this is a type of language disorder that affects primarily oral speech. So this is currently the project that we have that looks at the intersection between bilingual typical development and bilingual development in children with language disorders. And have you noticed any differences in how it manifests, uh, in how this difference manifests in bilingual versus monolingual children? And is there anything else that we need to do as researchers to explore this distinction more? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. So there, there are differences uh, and similarities between... Uh, bilingual children with developmental language disorders and monolingual children with developmental language disorders. And it depends on which language the children are speaking. And also in the context of bilingualism, it depends on whether we're looking at children who are exposed to both languages from birth or who are speaking one language in the home and another language, uh, let's say a school or the community. So it really depends on, on different factors. And I wouldn't just do it justice, but but just trying to kind of really summarize uh, this. Yes, as I said at the beginning, this is really a, a new area of research, like a relatively new area of research. So there is definitely more to be done. Apparently, most research has been carried out uh, on English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is also emerging research on other languages like French, German, Hebrew, Greek. But we need to test bilingual children or we need to investigate bilingual children speaking different languages so we get a better idea 
of the linguistic profile of all these uh, different mm-hmm. bilingual populations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like with everything, there's always a lot of individual variation involved. So you can't really generalize for everything, I guess. And so we talked a bit about general language disorders. Uh, what can you tell us about dyslexia in particular? The dyslexia is a specific learning disorder and it affects the ability to read and write accurately and with fluency. It's a learning disorder because uh, reading and writing need to be learned so they're not acquired spontaneously like language for example and it's a specific disorder because it primarily affects reading and writing but not let's say not cognition. (laughs) So individuals with dyslexia have intact cognitive abilities but they have specific problems So they have what we call below age appropriate norms for reading and writing. And as you know, it's a quite well-known disorder. It affects approximately 7% of the population, although there are studies that have reported that it may affect a larger group even. So let's say in a group of 20 children, you may have at least one or two individuals with dyslexia, which is not a negligible uh, number to have in in a classroom. It's quite big, yeah. Yeah. And dyslexia is, as we said, a reading and writing disorder, but people may not know that it's a disorder that actually affects... phonological abilities of the child and by that we mean that the dyslexic child has difficulty pulling apart the different individual sounds that make up words so we call this in linguistics the different individual sounds that make up words we call them phonemes and the child has also difficulty figuring out how these sounds are represented into letters or what we call graphemes So this is basically the root uh, of dyslexia. So dyslexic individuals have difficulty segmenting words into their phonological or sound elements, and they have difficulty linking each letter or letters to the corresponding sound or sounds. Yeah, so that's basically, in a, in a nutshell, what dyslexia is. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it's reported that it might affect 7% of the population. But at the same time, if we look into the fact that bilingualism might interact differently with this, then there's a possibility of a lot of invisible dyslexics, basically, that will never get diagnosed because there isn't enough research in this area. Yeah, the problem with um, bilingualism and any language disorder is that um, if we don't know what typical development looks like, it's very hard to be able to diagnose what atypical development would look like. Mm -hmm. For example, if we don't know how, um, let's say, uh, an Italian-English bilingual child would spell certain words in English, Mm -hmm. then we don't know whether their spelling mistakes derive from their, uh, you know, transfer of their one or something related to the to the Italian or something that is related to dyslexia if they do have dyslexia for example yeah absolutely and you touched on this briefly earlier the fact that you do get this question quite a lot but is it possible for someone to be dyslexic in one language and not the other no (laughs) so in a nutshell no Um, however what is possible is that the manifestation of dyslexia may change as a function of the writing system to be learned Mm. so uh, we make this distinction between opaque orthographies and transparent orthographies or opaque writing system and transparent writing systems. So a transparent writing system would be a system where a letter or a grapheme has a one-to-one mapping to a sound. Like, for example, in Italian, if you say A, it would always be spelled with an A. You know, there is no alternative. 
Whereas in English or in French, this one-to-one correspondence is much less prominent in the system. So, for example, if you think of the words like rough or tough or through or though, they all mm. are spelled with this O-U-G-H kind of letters, but they're all pronounced differently. So we don't have this one-to-one sound-to-letter mapping as we have in transparent orthographies. So dyslexia will surface differently in a Spanish-speaking child as compared to an English-speaking child who is learning a more opaque writing system. So would you say this uh, speakers of some languages are more prone or more likely to develop dyslexia than others or is it mainly a difference in how it would manifest in one language compared to another? Yes, it's the latter. So it's it's basically a difference in the manifestation in one language compared to the other. So the chances of getting things wrong when you're trying to spell words in English are much higher than, you know, getting things wrong when you're spelling in Italian or in Greek or in Spanish, where you have more transparent orthographic systems and where orthography can be learned by just following some, you know, usually it's like the morphology or the grammar that is telling you, oh, you should spell this in this way, whereas you should spell this in that way. I mean, English also has phonological rules and orthographic rules, but they're not as transparent as what we see in other languages. Mm-hmm. So my mother is dyslexic and I had an unknown language disability, more similarly to dyslexia. And so especially growing up, my mom's from Finland. And so when I was trying to learn how to write in English, she was always like, just sound it out. You spell it exactly how it sounds, because Finnish is one of those languages that the way it's spoken is the way it's written. And I like write down words and then she'd look at it and be like, yeah, no, that doesn't seem right. It took me so long as a kid to figure out that cookie was spelt with a, a C and not a K. It's so not fair. Yeah, so it's the manifestation <laughs> that differs. It's not that the individuals doesn't have. And especially what we say about all language disorders is that if a bilingual individual has a language disorder, this should manifest itself across both languages. So you cannot have dyslexia in English, but not have, mm-hmm. let's say for an Italian English bilingual child, they cannot have dyslexia in English, but not in Italian. They should have it across both languages. So it's just a matter of maybe because of the transparent orthography, uh, Mm -hmm. it just, the dyslexia in Italian would kind of fall under a threshold of what manifests, basically, Mm -hmm. because it would manifest more prominently in a language like English, where what you say is not reflected in the way that you write it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And since we talked about reading and writing, how would you say dyslexia affect or doesn't affect uh, sign language users? Well, um, this is a very interesting question, and it's also a very novel area of inquiry. So we know that sign languages, even though they're uh, soundless, so, you know, they're not spoken, still they do have a sound system. So they do have a phonological system like spoken languages. So by sound system, we mean that signs can be broken down into minimal and meaningless components, which we consider to be phonological properties of sign languages. So these components are the handshape, the movement, and the sign start and end location. Mm -hmm. Just to give you like a comparison to spoken languages. So in spoken languages, a phoneme is a sound that doesn't have a meaning in itself, Mm -hmm. but can influence the meaning of the word. So for example, in English, when you say coat and goat, this difference between the initial sounds k and g change the meaning of the word, right? So this is what we call a phoneme in the context of spoken languages. 
So it is basically a minimal unit that doesn't have any meaning but has repercussions for word meaning. Similarly, in sign languages, the hand shape and the location of the hand have what we consider now to be phonological properties. So, for example, to borrow an example from the literature, in British sign languages, the signs name and afternoon have identical hand shapes and identical movements, but different in the location the signs are articulated at. So forehead for name and chin for afternoon. All right. So sign languages also have a phonological system. So if sign languages have phonological systems, then we could just hypothesize that it is possible for a signer also to have dyslexia. So if dyslexia is primarily a disorder that surfaces as the inability to pull apart the different individual phonemes that make up words, then one would expect to find dyslexia also in signers. That's incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the moment, we don't have enough studies to answer this question. So we just have a few case studies investigating these these questions. However, these studies do report that signers have, dyslexic signers, have difficulties with the phonological properties of signs. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. So there are a couple of studies, very recent studies in the literature reporting that. So it's, I know it's mind boggling because you would think like in terms of sound, you would expect, you know, some auditory signal and that's not there. But yeah, it is true that sign languages do have phonological system of a different kind, but it's still a phonological system. Yeah, I guess it's interesting because even for languages that do have sounds, like we associate the phonological system with the sounds that we produce, but then at the same time, the phonological system is still probably a space that is stored somewhere it's still information that is stored and it just translates into sound because that's what that language does yeah exactly yeah so maybe it's similar for sign languages and so that system can still be affected Mm -hmm, exactly Mm -hmm. yeah that's incredibly interesting um so would you have any suggestions of approaches that could result in people with dyslexia having a lessened impact of uh, their symptoms I mean, yeah, I mean, they're not my recommendations. It's basically practices in the field. So usually treatment of dyslexia involves a a panel of specialists. So that would be a pediatrician, an educational psychologist, speech therapist, and also involvement of the school, the parents, the child as well. And currently treatment of dyslexia involves improving the phonic skills. So by phonic, we mean this kind of uh, word, Mm -hmm. sorry, letter to sound mapping. So training the child to kind of become better at doing that. Also reading and trying to decode individual words and also words in context. Also training dyslexic uh, individuals on the acoustic elements of the speech signal. And also encouraging children to read and to try to read more fluently. So, you know, being dyslexic kind of discourages you from reading, whereas, you know, trying to actually improve your skills and trying to, to read more is something that could help with treatment. Another aspect that is kind of targeted in this area is also trying to increase the child's vocabulary size. So the more words a child is able to, a child knows and is able to recognize, then the more skillfully they'll be able to read those words. So these are some of the aspects that are targeted uh, during kind of uh, in the treatment of dyslexia. 
So dyslexia is probably the most commonly known language learning disorder. What are some other really big ones that do come about as well? I mean, my I actually do lots of work in what is called uh, developmental language disorder or specific language impairment, which I also mentioned previously. So um, a specific language impairment is probably not as well known as dyslexia. Mm-hmm. It actually affects pretty much the same like proportion of population as dyslexia, so around 70% of the school population population but it's also considered a a hidden disorder and it's a hidden disorder because it affects oral language skills so it's not as prominent as dyslexia where you can identify that a child has a problem because you can see that they cannot uh, read or they cannot spell where a specific language impairment affects oral language abilities in the sense that the child has difficulty finding words the right words they have disrupted speech so they don't have very fluent speech when they speak they may also make lots of grammatical mistakes So they make mistakes that are not age appropriate. So for example, you wouldn't necessarily expect a seven-year-old child to have difficulty producing S on a verb. So saying he jumps, for example, they would say he jump or they have difficulty producing and comprehending complex sentences. So for example, when you have two sentences with verbs uh, one after the other, they may have difficulty kind of parsing this information. So it's kind of considered to be a hidden disorder because it's not immediately obvious what the problem is. Again, as dyslexia, it's a specific language uh, disorder. That is, it affects the language abilities of the child. But other than that, the child develops normally when it comes to cognition and the the children are neurotypical and they don't have any socio-emotional problems Mm -hmm. kind of related to that, but they're not the cause of the disorder. So this is kind of a type of uh, disorder that I've done research in. Mm -hmm. The other, I guess, disorder that most of you have heard is uh, autism, but it's not a language disorder. Autism is primarily a behavioral communication disorder and language can be something that is also impaired in in this population. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a lot of examples of ways that children or people who have specific language impairments might show whether it's adding the S to the end of verbs or having issues with complex sentences. Usually, will a person who has SLI, will they show a lot of different types of examples of like language processing issues um, or will it be kind of limited to one specific kind of thing? I mean, again, it depends on the language. So for example, for English, we know that adding an S or a ED to a verb is is very difficult. (laughs) Uh, So this is what we call like present tense and past tense is very difficult for English speaking children. Whereas we know that for Italian, for example, children, this is not as difficult. However, what we know is difficult for children with SLI is the ability to comprehend and produce complex sentences. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if they hear a sentence, the boy who kicked the girl that was sitting by the fence was tall. So this is a sentence that involves multiple embedded sentences. They will have difficulty understanding or even producing that sentence. And of course, you know, if you think in terms of, you know, academic skills and the kind of text that they need to read uh, when they're in primary school and later on, most of these texts involve understanding this kind of complex type of writing. So if someone has, and actually producing this type of complex discourse, so if someone has difficulty comprehending and producing this complex type of uh, discourse, then this has important repercussions on their academic achievement and then ability to kind of mm-hmm. succeed um, at school and, and later yeah. on. So, I was just going to say, those kind of complex embedded sentences are things that we use 
generally, even in our everyday lives, it's quite common for us to speak like that, to write like that. So yeah, that's, it's a huge hindrance, definitely. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that SLI and um, dyslexia both make up kind of a similar percentage of the school population for children. Are they comorbid sometimes? Or is it that when would people have either dyslexia or SLI? Yes, they can be comorbid. So it, uh, it is the case that an individual may have both dyslexia and SLI, but it is not the case that every child that has SLI will go on to develop dyslexia or vice versa. So this is why we say that there is comorbidity, so they can co-occur within the same individual, but they're not necessarily you know, genetically or otherwise related. Interesting. What's the biggest difference developmentally between a typically developing child's like language acquisition and the language acquisition of a child who has a language disability or disorder. Is there a difference in the way they acquire language or do they hit the same stages? I mean, there are differences. I guess the most prominent difference is the first is the delay. So, for example, if we're talking about um, specific language impairment or developmental language disorders or SLI or DLD, then what we see in the first instance is delay mm. in the onset of, of speech. So if you think that, for example, a typically developing child will start producing the first words around the age of 12 months, for a child with SLI, this may happen around the age of 15 mm. or 18 months or even later. So the first thing is has to do with the onset of, of speech, basically. And then, of course, when it comes to acquiring language, various studies have shown that children with SLI may process the speech signal differently, which has an impact on how they're able to produce Mm -hmm. and comprehend language. So this is why we see persistent difficulties with language in the the speech of, let's say, a seven-year-old child with SLI or a nine-year-old child with SLI. So an individual with SLI of the age of nine may have the language abilities of a six-year-old or a seven-year-old child. Mm -hmm. That's a huge gap. Wow. Yeah, so usually we're talking about a a time lag of approximately two years between an individual with SLI and an individual with um, typical development. Do they seem to catch up as they get older or will it always kind of persist that there's a bit of a some kind of delay there? So they they improve with uh, performance improves with treatment mm-hmm. so with therapy and also in terms of SLI we know that the nature of the disorder changes as they grow older so for example a seven year old child with SLI may have difficulty producing third person S or uh, the past tense CD adding these to the verb but then an 11 or a 13 year old child with SLI will have fewer difficulties with that if at all and they have more difficulties with complex structures or with putting together kind of discourse, like telling a story in an age-appropriate way, for example. Mm. Okay, so I guess the big recommendation there is to work with your speech therapists and work on developing those skills to help catch up. Exactly. So you mentioned specifically that kids with SLI will start to develop language possibly later. Could these kinds of, you know, sometimes bilingual kids, at least I've I've definitely heard some people say that bilingual kids start to speak a little bit later because they're acquiring two language systems. Is it possible for typically developing bilingual children to be confused with a child with a language disorder? And is there a way to differentiate between that or do they look the same? 
Yeah, so that's a very interesting point, and it's also very important in terms of diagnosis because, as you said, bilingual children may have a later onset of speech as well. But when they start speaking, then what they do tends to be age appropriate. So even though the onset is later, then they pick up much faster than a child with atypical language development would. And also that depends on whether or not they're speaking their dominant language or not. If they're, if for example we're talking about, let's say, a Polish-English child and they're speaking Polish in the home and it takes them a bit longer to speak Polish. When they start speaking Polish, which is the dominant language in the home, we would expect them to develop Polish as a typical child speaking Polish would. Mm -hmm. So this is why it is always very important to ask what the dominant language of the child is and also to ask the parents themselves whether they have any concerns about the language of the child in the language language spoken in the home. Okay. How about cases where uh, the language dominance is not as obvious? Are there tests that you can do or to assess that? I mean, yes and no. I mean, there are no tests that you can uh, do directly. I guess what one could do is try to gather as much information as possible about the language experience of the child, also familiar history of a language disorder, and try to put together a profile of the child to better understand whether there is a real issue. And also it depends on when the child is being assessed. So sometimes maybe it's too early and we just need another six months of development for things to kind of clear up a bit. It's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy task. Uh, you know, bilingualism is a rather complicated and also uh, changing situation. It's not a stale state. So it is important to kind of gather all these pieces of information and try to understand whether looking at a case of a typically developing child, bilingual child, or of a language delay in that child. Mm-hmm. That should yeah. concern us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely important to keep an eye out for. Um, so a lot of us were wondering then, can bilingualism be a protective factor for having developmental language disorders? Or is it because of the prevalence in bilingual and monolingual populations? Is it the same? Or does it really kind of stick to one population more than the other? Oh, I mean, we don't have uh, large population studies with bilinguals to be able to know the prevalence, but one would assume, since this is a genetic disorder, that the prevalence would be the same across monolinguals and bilinguals. So being monolingual or bilingual wouldn't matter whether or not you have uh, whether or not you have SLI or uh, dyslexia. So if 7% is the prevalence in monolinguals, one would assume that also 7% is the prevalence in uh, bilinguals. So it's it's not whether or not you're bilingual that modulates whether or not you have SLI or any type of disorder. This is not related. Now, to the issue of protective factor, I mean, it depends on what area you're looking at. So, for example, there are some studies showing that bilingual children may be performing better than monolingual children. So, one of that area, one of those areas is, for example, processing of sounds. So, imagine you're a bilingual child and you're used to processing sounds, not just from your language, let's say English, but also from other languages, let's say French or Italian. So, it means that your inventory of sounds that you have is much larger. So the ability to kind of play around and understand the differences of the sounds is much more kind of entrenched in your everyday life. So this is an area where bilingual children have been shown to kind of outperform their monolingual peers. So we could imagine also that a, a bilingual child with dyslexia or SLI may be doing 
better than their monolingual peers with with a disorder in this area. Mm-hmm. Would it then, because um, I know I have a lot of friends who are teaching professionals and quite often um, children with dyslexia get taken out of language classes to have additional like other needs classes. Um, would it be good then to continue keeping them in those classes and uh, promoting them to learn a second language so they can get that extra phonological input? Yeah, I mean, I would think yes. Again, the uh, research in this area is very sparse. So, for example, um, uh, we don't know how uh, dyslexia, as I said, surfaces in a second language and how the nature of the orthographic system may influence um, uh, the writing skills of the individual. Uh, but it's definitely not something that, you know, I don't think that somebody should be taken out of a of a classroom uh, and be deprived kind of from learning another sound system just because they are dyslexic. So I think exposure to uh, uh, the diversity, the linguistic diversity may actually facilitate um, at some stage rather than hinder. So would you say that in relation to that protective element, uh, again, it seems to be a sort of threshold effect in terms of uh, a bilingual child is not going to be protected from developing dyslexia. But because of that training from across two phonological systems, maybe it falls slightly below of what will manifest compared to a monolingual child. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's not protective in the sense that, I mean, it's not something that you catch, right? Dyslexia is, as we said, it's congenital. Uh, But it's basically the type of training that you receive um, when you uh, speak or you write uh, in in two Mm -hmm. languages. And would you say there's uh, a possibility for any language disorders that are unique to multilinguals? Uh, no. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so th- there's no kind of language disorder unique to uh, to multilinguals. Uh, as we said, the, the manifestation of the disorder may be different if you're a bilingual. Mm-hmm. It may be different across the two languages or more languages of the bilingual or multilingual individual, but there is no disorder that is specific to Mm -hmm. bilinguals or multilinguals yeah Yeah, uh, that makes complete sense and uh, when it comes to multilingual and bilingual populations um, how do you do research with these populations are are there specific considerations that you should keep in mind yeah so when we research these populations we usually have a very detailed background questionnaire where we try to gather information about the language exposure across the different languages and their bilingual and multilingual experience. So we tried to gather information about when they started acquiring the two languages or whether it was simultaneously from birth Mm -hmm. or one language in the home and the other one later on in life, because it does matter. Like when we are looking at, let's say we have again a Polish English bilingual child in P3, you know, we need to know when exactly they were exposed to English. Were they exposed to English in P1? Were they exposed to English in the nursery? Because this is going to affect how good their English is going to be when we're testing them, let's say we're assessing their language skills uh, in P3. So age of acquisition, length of exposure, so how long they've been exposed to both languages, amount of input they receive, so on a daily basis, how much input do they receive in both languages, also quality of input, so who speaks as a child, are children exposed to native Polish or native English input, or do they get their input from non-native speakers of the language? Um Are there any other children in the family, like older siblings or younger siblings? Because we know that older siblings tend to bring into the family the language of the community. So the younger siblings become more kind of uh, 
proficient in the second language than in the home language, for example. So all these are factors that we need to to know in order to be able to disentangle what is uh, typical bilingual development or uh, a case of a disorder. We also need to have information about the familial history of any disorders because these disorders are genetic. So maybe they missed a generation, but they are passed on in the family. So Karine, for example, talked about her mother, for mm-hmm. example, having uh, dyslexia uh, and herself having uh, some, you know, uh, learning disability. Yeah. yeah. So these are factors that we need to kind of put together and create the profile of the bilingual child to be able to to understand what mm-hmm. the dominance is of the two languages, the exposure type and uh, and so on. So would you say that when it comes to uh, language disorders in bilingual children in the recruitment process, there's a lot more qualitative data collection than there would be with monolingual participants? Yes, there is in the sense that there is another language we need to kind of uh, have information about. So these questions, I mean, I guess if you're looking at a monolingual English speaking child, you wouldn't ask them, you know, how long they're exposed to English for because there's no other language that they're exposed to, presumably. But in the context of bilingual development, we kind of need to ask those questions. And how does it translate to a language therapy setting? How, what do you think are some indications for language therapy for bilingual children? Is there enough to support them? Yeah, so language therapy, uh, I mean, the ideal is that language therapy is administered in both languages of the bilingual individual, but of mm-hmm. course, this is not always possible unless the speech and language therapist speaks both languages of the bilingual individual, which is very rare. So what happens usually is that the um, language of the community is targeted. Uh, so the second language in this context, it would be English. But that doesn't mean that the child is not kind of assisted by this type of treatment, because just the chance to kind of practice, even in a language that may perhaps be the less dominant one, can have facilitative effects for the uh, bilingual child. However, what is uh, really important to stress, and, and this is related mostly to diagnosis rather than to therapy, is that when we're looking at bilingual children, we are not kind of meant to use the monolingual norms. So we're not meant to use the scores that monolingual children would get on a task and just try to assess the bilingual children on the basis of these uh, scores. We could do that only if we were certain that we're dealing with a bilingual child who's really dominant in English, for example. In that case, it could be Uh, safer to do that but not in the context of bilingual children more generally yeah so basically not school not judging a bilingual child with a language impairment in comparison to typically developing monolingual children but to typically developing bilingual children exactly yeah so we need bilingual norms and at the moment the standardized test that we have i can think of only one that uh, had those uh, bilingual norms so only if we have bilingual norms can we say say whether we're assessing a child with a with typical development or with language disorder. But if these bilingual norms do not exist, then we need to be very careful uh, in the way we interpret the scores of a, of a bilingual child because we may be misdiagnosing them. So, for example, saying that they have a language disorder when they don't or saying that they don't have a language disorder when they do. So this is the notion of uh, misdiagnosis, so either overdiagnosing or underdiagnosing a child. 
wow, so there's definitely a need then to continue this kind of research to even gather as much normal population of bilingual children just to see what does the typical development seem to look like. Because I don't, yeah, I can only think there's the, um, of questionnaires, there's, I know it's Sharon Unsworth worked on one. Mm-hmm, yes. But that, of, yeah, out of questionnaires, it's the only one I can think of as well. And for monolingual and like typically developing kids, there seems to be quite a plethora of tests you can kind of grab from to check it out. So yeah, there's definitely room for more research. So yeah, so currently there is a project uh, organized by the University of Leeds. Uh, and in this project, uh, the researchers are trying to kind of look at the questionnaires that are available out there for bilingual children, and how they measure input and dominance and the language experience. And what they're trying to do is standardize the, the questionnaires so that when clinicians or teachers want to use a questionnaire to gauge bilingual the bilingual experience they can you know use use that one so they kind of ask the same questions across the different contexts about language experience and dominance and inputs and quality and quantity and things like that that's great to hear that's happening oh yeah because that standardization is really important to make sure that things are happening i guess maybe the difference though is with the input from the different languages if the sound systems are really different and the writing systems are really different maybe that could throw in a loop you can't generalize all bilinguals against all bilinguals i'm assuming but that's great that someone's trying to figure out what are the key questions we need to be asking yeah exactly it's not a panacea but the more tools we have the better it is yeah Fantastic. Well, that's all the questions we have. This has been really fantastic and eye-opening. And thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. This was really uh, exciting. And thank you for all the questions. Uh, They were really intriguing and uh, to the point. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned some brain-tickling facts about bilingualism and language disorders. If you want to learn more about Vicky and her research, you can check out her university page, which is linked in the description. And if you have any questions, you can send her an email. Currently, Vicky is running two research projects, one in North America focusing on Greek heritage children and another one in Scotland focusing on children in Gaelic medium schools and the effect of those with and without language disorders. If you would like to help out with her research, you can also find information about them in the description or you can email Vicky to see how you can participate. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy and... Cheers, Karine and Victoria and Hey, Hello.